Thank you for listening. You're listening to Medicine Remix. What it do, Remix crew? It's your boy, Reesh, and it's your favorite podcast, Medicine Remix. And today's episode is a new concept we've been working on called Off the Record, which is a patient interview series where we have candid conversations with people who've been through some really real shit in their lives in the hopes to convey their compelling stories to anyone out there who's either going through something similar or knows someone who is going through something similar. And this debut episode features Patrick Merrick Gorton, and we talk about his journey with alcoholism and addiction from the moment he realized he needed to get some help to his grueling experience getting sober and how he has found some unconventional therapy through his podcast we live on a planet i think anyone going through any kind of addiction or trying to kick a bad habit of any kind will get a lot out of this episode we talk about the mechanisms behind habit reversal practical tips to get started on breaking any kind of habit and why organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous have been so successful in helping millions of people achieve sobriety. As always, leave us a voice message on Anchor or hit us up on social media with questions and or insights. Without further ado, here's our debut episode of Off the Record with Patrick Merrick Gorton on the one and only Medicine Remix. Hello. What's going on, guys? What's up, brother? To be honest with you guys, I was like really anxious and had a lot of anxiety of taking a phone call from you guys because I get a little starstruck from you. When I first came on, I was like, you're the first station that I listen to. And so for you guys to be wanting to come over and talk to me, I was getting a little anxious. No, no, no. Wow. And you yeah. know, and I think about Digo and Digo's, you know what? You're only famous if people make you famous, you yeah. know? And, and I like that. I appreciate that. So my wife goes, just be calm. Don't worry about it. They're for, they went to Rochester, you know? And I'm like, yeah, man. <laughs> you know? My wife's family, uh, her mom's from out that way. And so you guys know Nick Tahoe's and freaking garbage plates, right? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, so I was excited but nervous. You know, I was just kind of thinking, man, this is, you know, because you guys are, uh, like I said, when I first came on in October, I listened to your station. I was like, is this a real, what is going on with this app? You know, I was like really blown away and really liked it. And I was just still trying to find my feet and still trying to, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And I still don't know what I'm talking about out of my show. We really appreciate you saying that. We we still think we ain't shit, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure your, par- your parents are proud of you. I've it depends on what day. <laughs> right. Do you guys have kids? No, I feel like I still am one, but uh, <laughs> not yet. Not no, yet. You're, ma- you're married though. Yeah, I'm married yeah. and I feel like uh, this is maybe a conversation for another time, but Dee's probably going to be on deck soon with that. No doubt. Were you guys in the car this morning? How, how do you How do you know? Did you guys hear the argument? <laughs> 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 There's a lot of uh, beneath the surface plots trying to get these things to happen quicker, but um, yeah, they're gonna, you know, you know, the old adage, if you wait till you're ready to have kids, you'll never have kids because you're never going to be ready. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I've had sort of a, I guess, a trial run. I had a custody of my nephew early on in medical school. That's a whole nother story, but um, yeah, yeah, it's not to get too sidetracked, but yeah, it's been on my radar for a long time. I've always wanted kids. I'm sure it's kind of Freudian why. I mean, I I feel like I have a debt to collect. I think I had a pretty shitty upbringing. So I've always been anxious to redeem that. 
and I feel like kids are part of it. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for somebody who hears this is going to think, holy shit, that's a terrible reason. But I, I feel like there's a lot of life redeeming qualities if you can leave something better behind. And Reese, I think at, at your wedding, I think I kind of said that. I, I don't yeah. know that I'm thinking about it. Um, you know, meeting your dad, Reese, and, and knowing him as well as I do, he kind of brought that back out of me. That's, that's I think that's something I forgot about is the importance of raising a good human being and yeah so kids are definitely on the radar and i know patrick you were mentioning your kids are, are grown now so you probably revel in, in your greatness when they do something good yeah you know it's amazing that's why i was wondering because i know you guys are such busy guys and how yeah. you know you're a lot of times in your profession of you know being doctors that that's one of the things that happens later in life that you have kids or whatnot but yeah having my kids I had Abby at a young age, you know, I was only like 25 years old. So I was a young father, really not wow. knowing what I'm doing. And now that she's 22, I see just the greatness and things she does. And the oldest is 31. She just got out of the Air Force. She was in the Air Force for years. So yeah, wow. it's amazing what you see kids do. And I, I can't imagine though, raising a child today Right. It's like, you know, I think that would be difficult, not just with what's going on in our society, but just like the whole electronics and everything like that, I think would be very strange to raise yeah. a kid. Yeah, it would. It is. I, I mean, I sort of have a lot of kids because I see a lot of kids in clinic. Yeah. So, and I unfortunately take a lot of their problems home with me and shit like that. But yeah, I guess it is different. I, I, I can't help but imagine that every family in every generation has said the same thing you know when when elvis was shaking his hips i'm sure they thought it was the end of the fucking world <laughs> yeah you know? and, absolutely um you know the second you know people were smoking pot and doing lsd well shit that's the apocalypse for sure yeah and then uh when when guys started using hairspray during fucking poison and guns and roses mm -hmm. i'm sure they thought like all right now this is rome for sure guys yeah. are dressing like chicks oh. i remember that well because tipper gore was losing her mind if you guys <laughs> yeah. remember she was you know going to congress you know just waving these papers and saying these records need to have these labels mm -hmm. and the artists at the time are like please put one of those labels on my record so we'll sell right yeah <laughs> right yeah, for sure. because who wants you know especially if you got somebody like tipper gore or somebody that's all steppy telling you not to listen to that right. stuff i am talking about pervasive messages that are available to kids of any age that are explicit and violent and parents have a right to know that parents in this country right now aren't tuned in they they're not aware of what their kids are seeing on television and listening to and they really need to so that they can nurture their child and protect their child it's education for parents because right. i remember that when that came out and d snyder and those guys coming at the congress you know yeah. i'm an eight you know i graduated high school in 89 so i can remember you know when things were changing too at that where people were playing it's the music it's the video right. games it's the this it's the that and uh you know what did they blame it on in the 1800s they blamed it on something then too like you were saying d it's always something it's always going to be something something for sure mm -hmm. for sure yeah we people don't like complexity man people do not like complexity people they want it to be simple you know they want it to be one way all the time that's why you know you can't change your opinion when you're in in the limelight because then you're a flip-flopper right you know it versus right. versus saying no I, I, what i was was an idiot or what i was is ill-informed and i changed and i've adapted and i've grown and i've learned things and i've tried things and failed instead you know i think bill clinton said it you know he said americans prefer strong and wrong versus weak and right yeah mm -hmm. and i think unfortunately that's not just americans i think that's human beings we want it to be simple we want it to be one way and it's just not and that's the scary part with kids you know yeah that you're making a person and i think we fail to 
give them their space to become people. We want them to become us, like somehow genetically, they learn through our faults and uh, all our fuck ups and all our you know strife and all our disappointment that somehow that's gonna be passed on genetically so you don't have to fuck up where I fucked up, but that's not true. Right. That's not true, right. you know, and that's the scary part. You know, my mom used to tell me all the time, she said, I, I have you for maybe three hours out of the day and the world has you for 21. Mm. You know, and, you know, she'd say, all I can do is hope that I teach you things. So when you encounter situations that I didn't prepare you for, they apply and that you apply them. And at the time I I heard like every third word. So I didn't, I I wasn't hearing what she was saying, you know, and she would tell me, I want you to fuck up. I want you to fail. I want you to fall on your ass, but I also want you to live to get up and dust yourself off. And I think that's, that's a scary thing. That's a scary thing. You know, my, my heart when I watch like a bullying video or something. Just out of curiosity, why do they bully? What, what's the point of it? Why do you find joy in taking innocent people and finding a way to be mean to them? It's not okay. And you see a kid getting fucked with and I think, you know, that a kid, uh, maybe he goes home and tells his parents, maybe he doesn't. And uh, it's almost more tragic if he doesn't. Right. You know, because he just kind of lives with that resentment. And that's the hard part. Kids are fucked up. People are fucked up. We're all tribal and we're all looking for the weakest chimp to just fucking throw him off the branch. And I think that that's unfortunate. But man, that's the part of having the kid and letting him out into the world. But same time, they're growing up in an awesome time. Fucking kids have TVs in their room and shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's crazy. It's crazy. But it's, Apple it's watches. Like, it's beyond <laughs> that, right? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, I think, Patrick, I think you're kind of selling yourself short a little bit by saying that it would be tough for you to, to raise a kid right now because I feel like by you being on anchor and like you're not a regular dad you're a cool dad is what I'm trying to say <laughs> <laughs> I try I try I always was like that that's awesome and on this topic of like just growing up in the time that we're growing up in you know now and making mistakes and flip-flopping as is the natural course of human existence like also learning but now that's not just reserved for people in the limelight where that stuff is documented for everything, everyone, you know, that's on social media at least and chooses to participate in that, like everything's being documented at all times. And we're, you know, not only being exposed in a way that we've never been before, but we're also having conversations that we haven't had at this scale, talking about things like bullying and, you know, just so many different things, you know, like just knowing that racism and things like that exist to the level that they do and not really understanding the extent of it until technology enabled us to diagnose these things it's an interesting time that we're living in that's true you're absolutely right you know i think you guys both made real good points because when d was saying about change too like we all do fear change that's one of the things that besides heights and loud noises you know i think there's fear you know we fear the change and so you're right and but i didn't think of it that way of uh the way we are now of being able to show my children or be able to tell them what is going on with the instant of being saying you know don't be this person and don't be that person whereas back in the day i didn't have that instant information but you know i can remember i played with fire before and my mom is a nurse well was a nurse but she showed me a picture of a burn victim and said don't play with fire and so now i can imagine the internet today you could almost show like you guys here's somebody on fire don't do that (laughs) but yeah i can imagine both ways of you know raising one today because i still am raising them you know i you know i'm i've seen the change and just mine of what they've seen you know in our world and the bullying like you said but i've been really 
been vulnerable when you're saying about being able to come out and document and say things. I never talked about my mental health struggles. I never talked about my sobriety with anybody, even though everybody says, oh, you should share your sobriety story. I was like, I just kind of held it tight to my chest. And then one day on my show, I just decided to share it. And mm -hmm. people really gain a lot out of it because they there's somebody that's out there struggling right now, maybe. And they're like, oh, well, you can get sober. You can. And you just have to want it, though. Mine was I just wanted it. I, it wasn't court ordered or anything. It wasn't anybody peer pressure me. I wasn't put into a room and have everybody tell me how wrong I am. Because when that happens, we put up our dukes anyways. You know, being like Dee was saying, we're all chimps and trying to push mm -hmm. people down right. as soon as you start telling somebody what they're doing wrong like d said you only hear about three things of what people are saying or whatever you know so you're yeah. gonna put up those blockers and so for me i just wanted it right away and i know i just kind of jumped off top actually i think that's a perfect segue into one of the things that we definitely wanted to touch on with you because we've heard you share pretty openly on your station we live on a planet is about addiction and specifically you know alcoholism and overcoming that and just your journey and your story is uh, so important and this is one of those conversations that you know I'm kind of alluding to that I feel like just recently has started making its way at the scale that we're talking about one of the concepts that we're trying to put out our working title right now is off the record and in a similar way that we interview doctors that are you know have interesting stories and you know asking them questions a lot of them have been very insightful and educational inspiring on the flip from the point of view of people either going through some hardship or having overcome some hardship. That's really what I think off the record, what we're trying to do is really find those people that have compelling stories like yours. And I guess we can just jump right in. You kind of gave us a, a little bit of an intro, but can you take us through your journey with, with alcohol and kind of just like your origin story? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can, I can definitely try to do just a little quick synapse, you know, uh, of how I really became sober. I I, I was diagnosed with bipolar over uh, almost 30 years ago. And uh, I think on before that, all those years, I just self-medicating, self-medicating. And at the time, I didn't even know what bipolar was, um, never even heard of it. They were almost still kind of calling it manic depressive, I think. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, I was like, finally, now I know what's wrong with me. But that didn't help the drinking and still the drinking was still there because I was always non-compliant with my medication. Just I would take it for a while and not and then I would continue to drink. And then fast forward to like almost three years ago, I just started really, really, really getting heavily into drinking where I was almost like a 30 pack a day guy. You know, I was going out to the stores and getting the cheapest beer I possibly could, not going out and drinking anywhere. So I was just like George Thorogood drinking by myself and into these 30 packs. And uh, I started hiding it more and more from my wife, like drinking in the morning and everything like that. And it, it just, I kind of, one night deep into my drinking, I had a uh, 12 ounce in my hand and I just kind of, I felt like I felt like I got tapped on the shoulder or something of like, what the F are you doing? What are you doing with your life? What are you doing with this? You're not going to find what you're looking for at the bottom of this. And I'd never really, I always just kind of felt like I'm this Irish drunk and this is the role I'm supposed to play in the family. This is what I'm supposed to be. You know, that Irish happy drunk and everybody likes me. And I think that I hadn't really hit rock bottom, but there was something about just, I felt an awakening and it was almost for some reason I got lucky I almost feel like I had an instant healing all of a sudden I just kind of really wanted to go and so I, I, I thought I was calling AA 
and I was really drunk and I ended up calling this place called Aiden Recovery and they're like oh we can help you you know we can we can send you I'm like oh wait a minute no no I don't want to go I end up giving them all my insurance information they tell me hey we we can get you on a plane out to Syracuse the next morning it's leaving Syracuse it's going to Southern California and I'm like whoa next thing I know this is happening way too fast this means I can't ever drink again because if obviously you know all these things are starting to happen to me all these realizations it's happening really fast but I don't know what it was guys I just decided to take that opportunity jump on that plane and go to um, Dana Point and spend three months in like intensive intensive rehab you know in just beautiful area of Southern California I don't know if I could have done it right around my area of dreary upstate New York which it can be sometimes and I just I put everything I could possibly put into it to get sober and in August it will be three years and I, I was hitting like AA meetings and all that stuff hard and rehab and when I came back to um, upstate New York I just um, started meditating more and getting into mindfulness meditation and concentrating I was hearing you guys actually talk about it too about just concentrating on the breath you know getting back and being in the moment right now you know like it's 4:44 p.m eastern standard time and i'm talking to medicine remix you know and I, I don't have anything else i don't have tomorrow i don't have whatever and I, I so that's for me it sounds real i don't know if that's even an inspiring story or anything like that but it just for me i just kind of had enough i had to where i couldn't do it anymore and i did i knew there was something more for me out there than just alcohol and now I feel like an infant though. I'm just learning how to walk. I'm just learning how to feel again and have these emotions that I'm not used to having, you know? And so that's that's been hard for me as well. Mm. I wanna unpack that a little bit. How old were you when you said this was like about three years ago that you decided to- become to, sober, uh, yeah. And how old were you? Um, right now I'm 48. So you're about 45 like years old, yeah. And was there anything in particular that happened that night that kind of you know inspired you to I you know I've had a lot of people ask me and I'm glad you I don't know what it is I wish there was some kind of aha moment it was I really just I I decided I wanted to call uh, AA I just felt really lonely and I felt like I needed somebody to talk to anyways you know and I was I've been struggling my my wife wasn't home she works the weekend so she wasn't home and I was just feeling lonely I'm feeling this mental struggle coming on once again I've been dealing with bipolar since I was well I got diagnosed at like 25 years old and I just was stumbling just drudging through life again and just on one of those down moments because when I'm manic I used to like it but now that I'm older mania is a nightmare you know but I don't have any aha moment. It was just something where I was kind of lonely, kind of feeling like I needed something. And uh, I just, all of a sudden I, I called what I thought was AA and it was Aiden Recovery. And I just, I took the opportunity. And I guess I was lucky because not everybody has the opportunity. I had that my insurance was able to match up just right to where they were able to get me on a plane and get me to go. And, and then they're like, well, there's like a, a copay of $400. And I'm like, oh, well, no, I can't pay it. I can't go. You know, and I saw so I'm finding my ways out and I was real happy. And, I'm, and they're like, well, hold on, let, let me put you on hold for a minute. And they come back on and they're like, oh, we're going to waiver that. We're going to waiver that. And I'm like, well, I can't pay to fly out there. They're like, no, we'll pay for the flight. If you do the recovery, we'll pay to fly you home too. And so there was really no reason for me to say no, except for, are you willing to go towards that uncomfortable? Are you willing to go towards something that I'm not used to doing? You know, like we were saying earlier, that change, this is going to be a huge change for me. And I don't, I'm not willing to, and that I, I just, I did it. I don't know. I don't know what that aha moment was. And I wished I had 
some beautiful way to put it, but it wasn't any, I don't know. And I haven't had a, a drop touch my lips since, you know, and I, it's amazing. It's amazing. And so you wound up going that, that very yeah, next day. Yeah, you know, yeah, I was able I was able to get on a plane and um, fly to California and I was very sick though. As soon as I got to, they told me, they were like, drink the whole time. Uh, I'm like, huh? What do you mean? They're like, no, because you need to be under supervised um, medical supervision when you go through detox because it's very dangerous. They're like, you could die from detox. And I'm like, huh? What are you talking about? I'm like, no, I'm alcoholic, you know, but they're explaining to me that it's really bad, all this type of stuff. So they're like, drink on the plane you know don't get stupid don't you know make make sure you can still make all your connections and stuff but i was really surprised that they were telling me to do this because i'm like i'm going to a place to get sober and you're telling me to drink and i got there and um you do like three days in um detox and as soon as i got to the detox center though they end up sending me off to the er just because i was so sick and my blood pressure was through the roof and all that kind of stuff and so it was a couple days of just pure hell pure sickness pure hell and then wondering what the hell am i doing why am i out here what am i you know and i was with a bunch of young guys too you know i'm with a bunch of people that are my kids age and they're all i feel bad they're all strung out on heroin they're all wanting their hand abuse or you know it was just a bad situation a real bad situation so no matter how sunny it was and everything and how beautiful i was realizing that uh this was a you know serious shit serious shit what were some of the things that you were feeling was it like you know nausea uh, or like you can uh, i was that, just uh, i was bit, wishing like for death reach i was just i was yeah. i was throwing up so bad i was sick my blood pressure was through the roof i was having like where i felt like i was about to have a heart attack i was having heart palp like all i can think of is the worst dehydration symptoms that you can picture or think of that somebody was going through and uh just terrible just terrible it was it was is I look back at it now though and I'm, I don't know, I just, I, I'm thankful every day now. And I never really was, I never, I just kind of, I got to the point where drinking instead of doing it like a self-medicating of more just self-destroying, you know, I was trying to destroy myself slowly, I guess. So now I, I free, I feel free from it. It's pretty amazing. I saved like $27,000 from not drinking. <clears throat> Could you describe the detox part when, when you first got there? What did that entail? Well, it was, exactly? it was, even though I'm in a really nice area, the detox house was a shit house. It was just, I mean, they're, they're going to keep it clean as, as much as they can, but you know, it's smells like puke. It's, it's rough. It's, dirty and not dirty dirty but you know what i mean nobody's you're making some sandwiches and you're eating and you're sick or whatever people might be but there was a couple bedrooms in there and it was just mostly people laying around sick moaning groaning kind of just despair utter uh the aid that's on there doesn't really want to be there they're not getting paid enough to really want to you know so that's the reason why i got sent right to uh the er when i got there because the facility i went they did they didn't have the means for starting a line on me and everything because they started an iv on me when i went to the er and so once i had the line on me and they started an iv and all that kind of stuff and i was monitored for a little bit i went back to the detox house for three days and it was just a shitty is a, a bad experience you're not getting any counseling and so i'm thinking i flew all this way out here i'm thinking somebody's going to try to tell me and counsel me and come in and talk to me and tell me everything's going to be okay and nobody's doing that and so i finally find this one guy though who was uh worked there and he was sober and he ends up explaining to me he's like no this is not the place for this this is a place just for you to get your shit together 
start feeling a little bit better once you get to the house the group home type setting and then you start going to group every day that's when things will change and uh so that's that was the change after you do detox of like three days you go into a a home have like 13 other guys and this this facility i went to they had oh my gosh i think they had at least 20 20 homes and each home had you know 12 guys and it and uh so like 10 homes were girls and 10 homes were guys so yeah and then it was just um going to group every day after that it was all day long and i was at a dual diagnosis center as well because being that um i have bipolar i figured if i could find a place that was dual diagnosis as well so i was able to deal with both demons you know while i was there so it was pretty intensive three months that's for sure Wow. You know, in the hospital, for example, I mean, this is just from my kind of peripheral experience. Like when we have patients that are you know, dependent on alcohol, we have certain protocols that we have in the hospital where basically when you start having those withdrawal symptoms, I think, you know, years ago, they would basically just give you like alcohol in the <laughs> hospital, like when those things started right. happening, which when you ask doctors that were practicing back then, they were like, that was way better than what we do now, which is, you know, we basically, you know, load you up with benzodiazepines. I guess D would be able to maybe explain things uh, a bit better, like as far as why they choose those particular medications like Ativan that I guess can be mimicking alcohol, but isn't alcohol. Was there any kind of intervention like that? There was none that I remember of that. They put a line in me because of dehydration. And I think it was just probably normal saline. And if they put anything else in me, I was unaware, but it was just uh, basically monitored through this, how we're gonna watch you. And if it turns worse or anything different, then we'll go from there. But I was hooked up to a monitor and everything like that. So they had me, you know, the EKG type stuff is and stuff, but I don't, I think because of the facility I went to, they tried to make it so you couldn't get anything. Do you know what I mean? Right. They wanted yeah. like a zero, as soon as you get there, we're not going to give you anything type stuff. Because I remember saying right then when I was there, I'm like, well, I'm in California. Can I get a medical marijuana card while I'm here? Because maybe that will help with some of my anxieties or anything like that. And they're like, no, our facility is a zero type stuff. So maybe if I pushed it more reach, they might've, but all I remember is being wishing for death. It was some of the worst sickness i'd i'd ever felt i it was just really bad so this is d patrick um so not to challenge that uh patrick but i i'd venture to say that you, you you did get medication i don't think at that point they'd be asking you if you wanted it because it, it would right. be a uh, medical emergency but what you're describing this is the thing that struck me patrick is aside from sort of the serendipitous shit that happened you know you, you you know you reach out you contact the wrong place turns out it's the best place you get there you're like what the fuck am i doing here this is awful I feel like shit what an, what an idiot why would i make this decision and then you come out saying fucking best thing i could have ever done and i probably would have never done it given different circumstances um that in itself is wild but the thing that struck me the most was you said you were shocked that they instructed you to drink your way there because to me and to reach it's sort of like saying if you don't eat you're gonna feel hungry when right. when you tell people hey if you stop drinking abruptly uh there's a good chance that you you have some serious damage or you die so what you described very very classically and and reach was trying to get you to to describe more of the physical symptoms you described alcohol withdrawal and the crazy thing about that is that that wasn't your first thought that no shit if i stop drinking i'm gonna die and i i, I think that's my naive uh privileged 
medically trained self that is shocked by that because that's a no-brainer to us and, right right and you being the guy who's actually doing the drinking and at that point in your life oblivious to the fact that if you stop drinking abruptly that you could risk your life it's really fucking mind-blowing to me because that's yeah. the part that lands people in a lot of trouble by the time we see them in the hospital so many people make this this leap to, to say i'm fucking done something happens their wife leaves they lose their job and they say fuck this alcohol is ruining my life that's it i'm done i'm going cold turkey and then they get the shakes and something happens either somebody finds them or they say fuck it i'm gonna drink or or they end up in the hospital something always happens but the fact that somebody takes this leap of faith and and whether or not it's it's permanent whether or not it's genuine i don't know but they make a choice in that moment to say fuck this i'm gonna stop and they do to some degree they stop and they get sick something happens they end up in the hospital and then they kind of forget about that whole leap of faith that they took and then before you know it they fell off the wagon and, and they're drinking again i think it's important we, we take a minute to highlight the withdrawal um there's a protocol and i'm sure you've probably heard it thrown around it's called the siwa protocol c-i-w-a yeah. um it's sort of a standardized protocol it's like a grading sheet to grade symptoms so for example patrick you come in I ask you, uh, when was your last drink? You tell me, and what are you feeling right now? And you'll say, I'm sweating. My heart feels like it's gonna jump out of my chest. I feel like there's shit crawling on me. You know, some people get hallucinations. That whole three day period that they were watching, the reason they do that is because right in there, about the three to four day window is where you're at most risk for a thing called delirium tremens. That, that's, hmm. that's the seizures uh, from the alcohol withdrawal and those are deadly those can kill you 100 i remember them yeah that, saying that that's the part that will kill you and the irony is it's about three days after you stop drinking so when people think they're through the worst of it and they think it's like a, like a trial from god like all right fuck it i'm i'm, I'm gonna <laughs> stick this shit out because i'm a goddamn man that would be my stupid thought you know I'd right be, fuck this i can do this and and then i'd have a seizure that's what i know for a fact that's what would happen to me because i'm i'm a meathead that way in that sense and the frustrating part is that when people make that leap like you did, there's a conviction there to do it. And that can be deadly. And the part that really hurts my heart is that that's why you have to reach out and incorporate other people in your sobriety. But that that's almost telling people that you're a drunk or I'm an alcoholic or however you want to phrase it is harder to some people than the actual quitting of the drinking. Yeah. And yeah. That part is the part that fucks with me the most because I'm at the mountaintops shouting like, I'm not going to judge you. I don't think more or less of you. If you drink, if you, I don't give a fuck. If you want help, come talk to us. And people, they'll shut down. Fuck that. I'm not telling people what a fuck up I am. You can go fuck yourself. I'm doing this at home. And, right. and, and then they try it and then it doesn't work out and they say, fuck it. I can't quit. That's not me. Fuck it. I'm just going to, I'm going to scale it back a little. Instead of 30 cans, 25. And, right. and that shit works until it doesn't, until a bill lapses and you start getting stressed out or the wife says something or the kids do something. Mm -hmm. And then you're back and you're back in the, in the same boat. And so to hear you say like, yeah, they're telling me to stop or to not stop drinking and not knowing, you know, step one, that that shit can kill you. That's one thing that stood out to me. The other thing was Reese was pushing for this aha moment. And it's kind of funny, Reese, because I, before my training, I always looked for the aha moment. Um, I thought it had to be there. I thought it was like a prerequisite. Like, nah, I can't help you, bro. Until you have the aha moment, like I can't do shit for you. You need to go find that aha moment. And 
it's very rarely there very very rarely there um it's more of a like i'm at the bottom moment like there's no yeah. aha it's like holy mm-hmm. shit i think i'm at the bottom when the fuck how did this happen that's You're- kind of the way it was yeah it was almost like that time song uh 10 years it got behind you no one told you when to run you right. missed the starting gun all of a sudden you're like what the fuck am i yeah. doing <laughs> how did i like and, and the worst part is it's what am i doing because at that point and i say this patrick with all due respect i don't want to clump you in and please correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like folks who have substances abuse uh, substance abuses problems and, and in this particular case speaking of, of alcohol i feel like there's a lack of sense of self with people who struggle with alcohol oh yeah and yeah i think that's the comfort of the alcohol it creates this sort of ambiguous it it, it rids the, the self-consciousness of the self and it allows you to just fuck up what do you expect bro i was drinking I'm yeah 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 you're no you're right because i think that that i've struggled with my self-esteem as long as i can remember anyways and so yeah so you're right no i think that a lot of times that when you get to that point and you're that far gone you're not doing it for enjoyment anyways you're doing it for some other there's some there's always some other underlining thing because i was at that point yeah i definitely don't need to correct you if you're wrong because you're right right (laughs) no no, it's 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 helpful uh, to hear that from me because i think that sense of you know the, the part that is hard for people to understand uh and me included is when i'm speaking with somebody who's you know struggling with substance abuse the irony to me is that they drink like there's no tomorrow but they know there's a tomorrow they just don't give a fuck mm-hmm. about tomorrow and to not give a fuck about tomorrow is to not give a fuck about yourself right and that's the crazy part because even in the moment they're drinking and a lot of times they're having fun you know there's there's this sense of like fuck it this is what it is right now and in no way shape or form are they under any ill-advised thought that tomorrow doesn't exist they know it's there and that almost encourages them to drink you know because i don't want tomorrow to come too fast because then i gotta deal with shit. so they live in this this weird space and you said something that was very telling to me you said i wanted someone to talk to when you called <laughs> and that wanting so it, it made me think you know as part of uh, dealing with your bipolar disorder were you in talk therapy with anybody yeah i've tried quite a bit of different things because at one time d i said you know what f medicine i'm so sick of taking fucking medicine i'm just sick of it and so i said you know let me try to take that european approach and do talk therapy and so i was doing that talk therapy for a little bit yeah it's it's funny you know men tend to say two things to me about therapy and uh whenever i suggest it and and if if they do do it i've had guys say to me yeah man the therapist said that uh therapy's not for me it's not for me and i i have yet to hear a therapist actually say therapy's not for you Um, and uh the other thing is you know i know what my problems are why the fuck would i need to tell somebody what they are i already know i don't i don't need them to tell me what i know what the problem is and those two things are striking to me because they're missing the point obviously but even in your voice now it sounds like you tried it you gave it a good college try but it wasn't a a good fit am i reading that wrong um yes and no i i've liked it and i didn't like it both what i what i right now believe it or not and it sounds real weird i found like my talk therapy right now with you guys i found it through anchor i stumbled across it back in october and so my show that i do i feel is my therapy and I'm able to come out every day 
and practice my thought process and formulate it in some kind of entertainment type show thing. Right. But really deep down what I'm doing is I'm doing talk therapy with my listeners and that I can just come out, be transparent, talk about what's going on in my life. And then at the, there's times when I do not want to push this red button because all of a sudden I am in that point where I'm really depressed. I'm really low. And then I'm like, I don't want to do it. I'm like, but now's the time to push the button, push through that. And then at the end of the show, just like I've had with talk therapy, I feel better. I'm not opposed to trying it again. And I think that um, it's finding the right person too, though, that you have to connect with them. Because I've heard you talk before. One of the gentlemen that you had didn't say but two words the whole time you're talking with them. (laughs) So you're like, okay. uh, So it can be a struggle with some things. But I think that finding the right person. And then once the person really allows themselves to open up and allow that talk, it is very, it's some of the most therapeutic things I've ever found to be is to just be honest yeah man you it's this is crazy patrick i i i, I was just telling reese today i was working on a piece about therapy and mm. um the crazy thing is, is what you're saying part of the growth for me in my training has been understanding what psychotherapy is and it's not always me talking it's me listening and i think i've unfortunately uncovered a lot of terrible therapists. There's not a lot of good ones. And I say that maybe with some regional bias, maybe in my area there is, and I don't know, but from the population that I work with, there's not a lot of good, there's some good ones, there's some great ones actually, but uh, there's not a lot of them. And I think part of that, what you just said here, it's crazy because what what psychotherapy is, is a genuine conversation, a truthful conversation. And part of being truthful is not only talking but listening and for the beginning of most relationships the majority is me just listening just paying attention because you know my grandmother used to tell me this when i was a kid she would tell me you don't have to guess what people are they'll tell you and when they tell you believe them so if somebody even jokingly says yeah but i'm a bit of an asshole believe him (laughs) (laughs) that guy's an asshole believe him and I, you know, when she used to tell me that, I used to, you know, think, oh, that's all tongue in cheek. Now in my training, I learned that if I listen long enough, people tell me who they are. If I don't judge them long enough, they reveal to me the most terrible things about themselves. I don't have to push very hard. All they need to know is that I'm listening. And what you just described Anchor as for you, is just that. No one is listening to your station, Patrick, because they owe you anything. They're listening because they wanna hear you talk. And by doing that, you feel that responsibility and that burden, to be honest. That moment where you struggle to push that button is because you're, you're entering a space where you have to be honest if this is gonna work. Right. And that is a real sort of micro representation of what good psychotherapy is, an honest, genuine conversation. Because when I try to get people into therapy, my lead in is always what you just said about the drugs and the medication is that I tell them it's it's not always a pill thing. I'm a pill guy when I need to be a pill guy. I think medication has its place, but sometimes it's a skill thing. And most times it's going to be a combination of pills and skills. But I would want to exhaust the skill thing if possible. I want to work this to the bone because 
if people are willing to understand, everybody's got a therapist, man. Everybody does. I do, you do. We just call them something different. We call them auntie, we call them uncle, we call them granddad. Some people call them bartender, <laughs> right? We yeah. all fucking have one. Here's the problem. And here's like, if you don't remember anything I ever say from here to when I die, I think it's beneficial if people remember this, is that we tend to surround ourselves with people of equal caliber. Nobody surrounds themselves with a bunch of idiots because that would be fucking exhausting, right? And nobody wants to be the idiot in the group because that's fucking exhausting. To surround yeah. yourself with nothing but genius minds is, is draining. So we surround ourselves with people of about the same capacity. And the problem with that is they give us advice that we are capable of giving ourselves. So it's nothing that's truly objective. It really is coming from a place where we could probably get to there with our own logic and our own thought. So why doesn't it make sense that you defer to somebody who's maybe 10% better at living that part of life because they sit around and they study that shit and they talk to people on a daily. Why not surrender to them for an hour a day? Why not? And just hear them out, hear what they have to say. Because I don't know about you, Patrick, but I've been in arguments with my girlfriend and two days later, I'm playing that shit back. I'm driving across the bridge and I'm playing that whole shit back. And I'm fucking in my head, I'm getting amped. I'm getting pumped. I'm, when I see her, I'm like, shit, I'm gonna let her know. And I start going through <laughs> like bullet points. I'm gonna tell her this and then I'm gonna say, bitch, please. And then I'm gonna say this. And then, and then I get there, I get there and I'm and I'm struggling. I'm looking for that opening to, to like somehow drag in all this shit that I want to say. And then she gives it to me. She does something annoying or she says something mean to me or rude or, or I, something I perceive as rude and I go in. And as I'm saying it, it sounds like a giant clusterfuck. None of it makes sense. I'm bringing in shit from last month. None of it's it's just fucking jumbled. It's not compiled. Oh, oh, it's, yeah. It's, all, oh, it's all nonsense. And I think to myself, well, god damn it, that didn't fucking come out right. So just forget it. Forget it. Fuck this. Forget it. I'm out of here. I'm, I need to go for a drive. And not one thing was solved. So in therapy, I'm allowed to say that shit out loud and hear my ridiculousness, my insecurities, my fears, my faults come out in this jumbled fucking mess to this person who's pretty unbiased. They're just gonna hear me and hear what I have to say. But what that gives me is it affords me the opportunity, Patrick, what you just said with Anchor, what you're doing, that you have to hear yourself. You have to know that other people are listening. And not only are you talking to one person, you're talking to an infinite possibility of people. And all those people also have the ability to call in and reflect on shit that you've said that now exists in the ether. And there's a heaviness to that. Yeah. And oh, yeah. if you're going to do it, why are you going to bullshit them? No one's making you do it. Right. And so if you're going to do it, you're going to make this shit real. And by no means am I trying to say that this is like a replacement for therapy. But I, if nothing else, it's a good goddamn icebreaker to therapy. Because if you're going to be genuine with yourself and put that out there for people to critique, that requires you to sort of abandon this sort of role that you've played of not having a sense of self of sort of barricading yourself with substances and from the inside out just kind of rotting and just letting out all this vile sort of behavior for some reason you know that aha moment reach i don't fuck with it anymore because <laughs> i've i've had people in therapy man and i'll see them for months and we'll get there we get to the aha moment and i'll be like you know is it possible that you feel this way because of this I've had people look me dead in the face and say, holy shit, yeah, holy shit. 
that's a me thing. That's not my wife's fault. Holy fuck, I'm like this because of my dad. And then they'll just go into this whole thing and then they'll say, man, that's crazy. All right, so what medicine are you gonna give me? <laughs> and it's like, whoa, what the fuck? We, you just missed the boat, dude. Like, right. we, we, we're not gonna sit here and revel in the awesomeness of this aha moment? They don't give a fuck. That's just kind of background noise. Oh, that's cool. All right, I know why now. All right, so cool, what are we, what are we gonna start? Which medicine? And if it means something, if the aha moment means something to the person, okay, let's go with it. But I don't put stock in it anymore. And I don't know if that's good or bad because uh, Patrick, I don't know if you're aware of this, but one of the co-founders of AA, I believe his name was Bill Watson. Or yeah. Wilson, yeah. yeah right? um, that Bill fucking Wilson. guy, and you know his whole LSD experience that he had. He went off to his own treatment, did LSD and was like, was it LSD or Belladonna? No, LSD, 100%. And oh, okay. um, he, because he wrote back to a bunch of people. I think he wrote to, to, to Carl Jung, who was dead at the time, so he never got the letter, obviously. Um, but but uh, I don't know if he wrote <laughs> that, that while LSD. he was on, still LSD, on the LSD. He, he wrote the letter. Yeah. And what he said, Patrick, and, and uh, I'll shut up after this, but I, what he said was that LSD, which by the way, they kicked him out of AA. Um, because he insisted on LSD being part of the treatment. But uh, he said that the LSD helped him re-experience a spontaneous spiritual experience that he had years ago. So when, right. when you say, Patrick, that you didn't necessarily have an aha moment, but it, it kind of sounded like you did, like you had a, I've been here before. And I had, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I, I did take a lot of L LSD in the 80s when I was watching The Grateful Dead. Sure, sure. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I, who knows? And, and, you know, I, whether or not, you know, LSD has a place in the treatment, I, I think it sounded like you kind of had, and I say this, I'm trying to be non-denominational, but a sort of come to Jesus moment. And it's weird because I, you know, I've told this story before a little bit because somebody's asked me how I became sober or whatever. And I said, it's almost as if the hand of God came down and tapped me and said, Patrick, stop drinking. Right. You know? And I, and so, yeah, it was almost, I guess if I was a, a real religious guy, that's exactly would be my hook. Right. I'd be saying, you know what? I had a calling from Jesus and you're right. And so I think that with certain people, when that happens to them, and if they're already prone to think that way, right. that would be what it would be to them. However, since I'm not prone to thinking that way, it wasn't a, a, a Jesus moment, but it was absolutely some kind of spiritual or spiritual. whatever awakening, yeah. if you will. Because it definitely, it almost felt instantaneous to where I felt some spiritual type snap in my brain of the universe telling me there's another option out there for you, Patrick. Right. You just have to, be, you have to be willing to look for it and find it and go towards the uncomfortable. And I just got, I got lucky. I, I, it was very serendipitous that night. Things just absolutely happened perfectly the way they needed to happen. Right. You know, you know, it's really interesting because this Bill Wilson guy, he wasn't particularly uh, religious. I think he was actually like agnostic or atheist, but most of the 12 steps of AA, I think has the word. <laughs> it like does. God yeah. Yeah. It. You're absolutely right. Rich. And I believe they did some studies. I want to say in Harvard, kind of like looking at a bunch of people that were trying to do some sort of habit reversal training and they found that reversing any habit is really understanding cues 
cravings and rewards. And you can change that routine by basically substituting the behavior of, you know, insert addiction here with something else. But the relapse rate was significantly higher when one particular ingredient was missing. Or to put it another way, the people that were much less likely to relapse were the ones that had what they stated as like a necessary ingredient of belief in some either higher power or something bigger than themselves. Like that ingredient of belief was the biggest predictor of if this person was going to relapse or not, which I thought was really interesting that because that's a really difficult thing to quantify. It's a very hard thing to measure. Like Dee and I have had these conversations before just in other contexts, just, you know, this spiritual like realm, like how do you measure the soul? You know, like we, we talk about these four elements of health being mind, body, heart, and soul. And there's just this intangible component, but it seems to be really important. And when you look at AA, which is probably the largest and most well-known habit changing organization in the world, I think I was looking up these statistics, like over 2 million people seek help from AA every year and as many as 10 million people have achieved sobriety and it definitely doesn't work for everyone and the success rates are hard to measure and it's effective obviously because it's still kind of like frozen in time even with all of this modern medicine and, and research there's no direct grounding in psychiatric or biochemical issues that researchers say are at the core of why you know alcoholics drink they basically almost sidestep scientific and medical findings, as well as types of interventions that psychiatrists say that alcoholics really need. So I guess, what is it about AA that makes it so effective? And when I hear both of you kind of talking about just this idea of like talk therapy, I'm gathering that that's probably why it's so effective, I guess, like just the ability to just kind of like tell your story and have that, you know, sponsorship, that companionship that kind of takes place of the alcohol. I'd love to hear both of your comments on that. Yeah, I, I think it could be. I think that relatability is one of the keys too, to where you feel like you're not alone, to where you can be in a group of individuals that are from all walks of life. You can have doctors, lawyers, uh, you name the profession, and yet you all have that one thing in common where you're just, your life has become unmanageable and you are powerless over that substance, you know? And so I think that that feeling, once again, like how uh, Dee was saying, we're all that tribal, we're, we're, we're just a tribe. We want that connectivity. We want to feel like we're not alone. You know, we're, we're used to living in these small groups of what, 50 or more anyways. And so when you get in this group, there's something maybe familiar about that. Maybe it's that tribal type thing. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think you, you touched on an interesting point because, Patrick, I'm sure in, in the course of your life, you've probably stumbled knowingly or unknowingly on all sorts of different flavors of therapy, CBT, DBT, ACT, you know. Oh, yeah. You, know, you name yep. it. ACT. Yeah, you know, fucking, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's so many different kinds and, you know, staying true to that theme of tribes, people get very committed to these things and they think their shit's the best and, you know, here's why. And there was a study done, I want to say in 2011, where they looked at all the big, you know, therapy types and compared them to each other and outcomes for people with psychosis, actually. And uh, I think Cambridge did the study. But anyway, what they found was it 
didn't fucking matter which brand of therapy you used. That the people right. who got the most out of it and had successful runs were people who got along with their therapist. And, yeah. you know, part of that is that connectivity part of it. And that's an interesting thing to me because, you know, being able to relate and don't get me wrong. Unfortunately, I know some therapists personally who they're good people, but they're, they're terrible therapists. And you know, by luck of the draw, you know, one of my patients either they live across town or they have a certain kind of insurance. So they end up having to see that person and they come back and they look at me and they say, Doc, I, mean, I love you, man. But uh, yeah, I'm never going to therapy again. And, you know, and it's like, oh, what happened? And they said, man. And they tell me who they had. And they said, man, fuck that guy. <laughs> and, 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 I wouldn't go see him either. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's yeah. see, and and professionally, I I want to be like, yeah, fuck that guy. Uh, <laughs> I I have to say like, yeah, I get it, man, I get it. And and the best I can say to them is, hey, look, if I judged all cars by the first car I ever drove, and that thing broke down on me, and I said, fuck cars, I'm walking everywhere. <laughs> right. You look at me right. like I was out of my goddamn mind, <laughs> and you say, bro, try another car, you know. And so you know, right. I I. I Try to tell them that but at the same time i don't get in a car and say mm, this shit isn't perfect so i'm not gonna get in that car either no no no. there's a compromise there's a good enough car and that good enough car is what i have and or the, the car that i can the, the best car i can afford right now that's what i have and that's the way you have to approach therapy that it's it's not always going to be the perfect fit sometimes it is but getting along with your therapist and you know pat speaking to that tribalness i fought with this too that is there merit in the claim that you shouldn't be counseling people about alcoholism unless you've gone through it because that's what aa is mm, right that's, yeah that's true you right know, that's learning like not listening to the advice but like who's giving right the advice and something like, even yeah. if it's subconsciously there i think there's something to be said about your brethren being people who have been through the throes of it and when they say right. something even if it sounds absurd i think you're more inclined to believe them or to have faith in the process because you've been here man and anybody can always say fuck you you're not me you don't know what i'm going through our shit's different anybody can say that but at at the heart of it at the very least maybe them knowing like man i know that dude's story and he went through some shit so fuck it i'm i'm gonna have faith in this process maybe that's worth something because you know you always hear about funding being cut for stuff oh mental health funding oh yeah this is cut oh that program was demolished do you guys know who funds aa uh, the, the aa people the, do, yeah right nobody yeah, us. Yeah, nobody funds aa they do it and, right. and you know they're, they're gonna be in some fucking church basement on a sunday they're gonna find a place there, so, yeah there's always every day in my hometown there's one yeah and, and i think that that now that the responsibility shifts to the people with the illness if my if I didn't see you in clinic, if I was like, nah, bro, you got to open up a clinic and then I'll help you. Nobody would get help because right. that's impossible. People say that's impossible. How are you going to do that? Well, here you have a situation where there's almost a doctrine, right? They have their rules mm -hmm. and, and there's no centralization of power and it's us helping each other. That's you know, that, that camaraderie yeah. that comes from there is crazy. I don't know how you would get away with forming that now for a support group, uh, for therapy, for someone with bipolar disorder or a major depressive. That's hard, man. That's yeah. that's super hard. It, it's a weird sort of niche. And like you said, Reese, it's not perfect by any means. But goddamn, if they haven't figured something else out there, I, I, 
I mean, I don't know what it is, but I think the stuff we just talked about is part of it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I encourage anybody to read the big book, actually, because I've told my wife when I got back from rehab, I said, listen, I know you're not an alcoholic. I know you're not struggling with addiction, but this book itself is a good read. It really is. And it's still relevant today, even though it's old. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. And I think that's because it contains truths in it, universal truths. Yeah. Yeah. You know, isn't there's it? some good stories. Yeah. Well, that's the staple of any book, right? The, the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's some powerful stories. And the problem is, is when we downplay them and write them off as fable or just stories with no real point. You know, I think that big book was put together by people who have been in some dark places. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The organization itself is a fascinating thing. And Reese, part of our education, you had to go to, uh, did you go to the AA meeting? Yeah. Yeah, we were required to go during our, I think it was during our psychiatry uh, rotation that we had to attend a few meetings. And oh, wow. it was a very valuable experience. It was like, it was really on some like addiction fight yeah. club shit, but like in the best best way possible. Yeah. And um, <laughs> what, what, what was, what's been your experience with AA? Patrick, is, is that something that you have attended in the past or continue to? Oh, uh, yeah. I hit it hard when I was in rehab in Southern California. That's something we did seven days a week. And then when I got back, I was really looking forward to it. And I got to my town here in upstate New York. And like I said, it's a small town. There's only like 17,000. It's very rural. And uh, I found myself in these depressing little rooms that were nothing like these groovy places in Southern <laughs> California. <laughs> and uh, a bunch of grumpy old bastards yeah. and just kind of basically telling me almost that attitude. If you don't have a year sobriety yet, then you should just sit there and right. be quiet. You know, the old timers. Huh. Okay. So it was it was kind of different, but yet I, I still gained value out of going and as a matter of fact, a friend of mine just the other day approached me about going to a meeting. So he's ready. He came up to me and that's his first step of is admitting he's got a problem because he came up. He goes, hey, um, do you still go to meetings around in Oswego or anything like that? I go, I haven't been in a while, but there is one right downtown. We can. Why? You want to go? And he goes, I, I, I was thinking about maybe. And I was like, yeah, perfect. Okay. So I, I, I've liked it. But the ones here in my hometown, that's just been my bad. All I have to do is jump in the car and drive to Syracuse. Syracuse is like 45 minutes. And I'm sure I'll get a little bit more flavor out in Syracuse than I'm getting in my little rural town right yeah. here. You know, w one of the things just to touch on, just, just about like, you know, I guess like habits in general or like really any kind of addiction. And, you know, even though we're specifically talking about alcohol, you know, addictions of any kind, really the whole idea of like identifying the cues and rewards that encourage these habits and then helping you find uh, a new behavior basically like to change an old habit you have to address an old craving and then you keep the same cues and rewards as before and you feed the craving by inserting a new routine so to speak is that basically how it has to be like specifically for you patrick was there a behavior that you kind of replaced the drinking alcohol with? Yeah, I don't, hmm. I don't know if I replaced anything that I can think of off the top of my head, but I think that it's, I, I tell you the one weird thing that happened to me, and I know I told you guys this before, but when I was in rehab, I stopped biting my nails oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I bit them. So that. I That's bit really them terribly. Yeah. And I, I mean, bloody stumps, I bit them too. And so I concentrated on not biting my nails while I was there. And so that kind of took my mind off addiction, I guess. And I'm, I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm if, not sure. if I, if I could completely 
throw a wrench in this and make it about medicine. I, I thought about that, Patrick, after you said that. And so Reese pointed something out earlier about uh, back in the day in the emergency room and in the hospital in general, they kept cans of beer in the medication refrigerators. And that was oh, yeah. to you know, fight off those withdrawals. And obviously it's a probably a better practice to use a well-controlled medical substance that you can know exactly how much you're getting in terms of dosing to prevent underdosing right. or overdosing. But ironically, Patrick, so many people know people who are taking benzos. They take Xanax, they take Clonopin, you know, they take something, you know, Ativan, something along those lines. And what people don't know, and I think Reese and I have done a, a segment on this, is that those medications, they work on the same receptors in the brain as alcohol. It's not like they kind of work the same, they work exactly the same. So, you know, when people say, oh yeah, you know, my grandma, oh, she only takes a Xanax when she gets on a plane. Your grandma's a fucking drunk, probably, you know? And God bless her because she may not know it. But Jesus, why are we doing this as prescribers, giving this shit to people just willy-nilly? Because anytime anybody, I see anybody taking it, I, in my mind, I, I literally see it visually like, oh, you just drank a beer. Dude, you're, right. you're, what are you doing? You're driving. Like, that's not the best move. Well, when you were drinking, Patrick, people take these medications, Xanax and stuff like that, for anxiety. It's probably the worst thing you could do for anxiety long term. It's, it's a terrible idea. It was an old school way to think about it. But when you were drinking, you were probably addressing some underlying anxiety. And when you weren't drinking, one of the symptoms of anxiety is, you know, fidgeting, biting their nails. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you might have been noticing was that that was part of a behavior that you inherited from some underlying anxiety that you were unknowingly or knowingly treating with alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that call in. I forget what the segment was, but I was talking about basically like, you know, biting my own nails. I definitely have anxiety. And one of, one of the ways that I've tried to at least limit that is like, I'm constantly chewing gum. I'm not chewing gum now. And I, I've just noticed that I, even during this conversation when I wasn't talking, I was biting my nails and it's super interesting. I mean, I was doing some reading about this, just about habit reversal training, just in kind of like prepping a little bit for this talk is, you know, this is definitely, you know, a lot more more these field than it is uh, mine, but yeah, I still obviously find it super interesting and has applications to, you know, stuff that, you know, I'm going through also. And just the idea of awareness training, like describing what triggers this habitual behavior, like identifying the cues. I feel like, D, you've shared this as far as maybe what you tell some of your patients. I don't know, maybe I'm making that up or heard somebody else say, but like carrying around like an index mm -hmm. card or, you know, nowadays having your phone and each time you feel the cue of that anxiety or whatever it is, or like, you know, feeling that tingling in your fingernails or whatever the cue may be, making a check mark on mm -hmm. the card and then figuring out some kind of a, a competing response, whether it's, you know, putting a chewing gum in my mouth or doing something else with my fingers, yeah. like, um, so that I'm not biting it. And every time that I'm able to use that competing response for the cue, then I'll add like a hash mark instead of a check mark and basically kind of studying that data. Right. And I feel like th this is, it's very easily described. It almost seems like too simplistic, but it's difficult. It's like anything else, you have to like work hard at this and deliberately, but it is possible. And having that belief, I guess, is the other big ingredient for it. That yeah. sort of thinking, Rish, is um, it's interesting because I, so often I have to remind people, by the time they decide, you know, to finally come talk to someone like me, they've 
kind of hit the bottom. And when they finally sit down across from me and, and I sit across from them and, and we're talking about whatever it is the issue is, I have to remind them that they've practiced their whole lives being this way. Like they're black belts and feeling shitty. You've <laughs> fucking perfected this. You're, matter of fact, you're so good at it, you don't even realize that you practice. Yeah. And the problem is people uh, associate practice with good stuff. You can practice being awesome at shit that's terrible for you. Talk to right. a degenerate gambler, they'll tell you all about it. You can be <laughs> a fucking black belt. So with that in mind, like you said, Rish, it's gonna take work to change because you've done yeah. this your whole life. You have to understand, we're gonna fix this. We're gonna change this. We're gonna get through this, but it's gonna require work. And the work we're going up against is work that you've done at a black belt level for a decade. Yeah. So yeah. bitch and wine when we fuck up a couple of times. Right. Because this is some serious shit that if I made you do something every day of your life for 14 hours a day since you were 10, do you not think you'd be a fucking ninja? Yeah. You'd be a master. I don't care what playing the goddamn cello, it wouldn't matter. Whatever you decided to do that much, you'd be fucking amazing. So give yeah. yourself a little fucking room to breathe here. Yeah. It's gonna take some work, man. And we're gonna fuck up along the way. But it's not about fucking up. It's about do you have that plan on you that's gonna get us back on the road? Don't give yourself so much credit that you're gonna know what to do when you fuck up. You're not that good. Yeah. We need to have a roadmap and that's where structure comes in. You know, that's where, you know, having the programs, that's where all that shit matters. But, you know, to your point, Reese, that's the same thing. That card that you keep on you, that that alternative behavior is to remind yourself. I even tell people to start before that. Fuck the card. Don't do anything. Just notice it. Yeah. Just say to yourself, oh, yeah, Awareness. just yeah. look at me. There I go. I'm, I'm about to feel like an asshole. Oh, look at me being all shitty to people. Okay, let's acknowledge that. That's right. it. Because when you start to acknowledge yeah. it, you build an ability to acknowledge it earlier and earlier before you start the behavior. You'll say like, oh, I think I heard her voice. Yep, here I go, I'm about to get anxious. Yep, look, look at me, right. biting my nails, God damn it. You know, and you'll start to get better and better. So the sooner you start to notice that behavior, the sooner you can start combating it. Yeah, I th yeah, that's, you're right. See, I would come, I would come see you. I would come talk to you. <laughs> Me too, man. Shit. <laughs> you got any openings? I really would. I'm not just saying that, D. Yeah. Well, I'm talking to you right now. I've been, I've been getting right. free, free right, therapy right. right now, actually. No. <laughs> No, but you know, I, I like the one thing that you said that I really gained, well, I gained a lot, but the one thing is that allow yourself to fail and it's going to be okay. And for you to say that as a doctor too, us patients, we need to hear that though, that because a lot of times we're threatened by doctors. We're afraid to upset you. We don't want to disappoint you doctors. We want to do exactly what you tell us to do. And we hold doctors at a different regard in our life. It's just what we do, you know? And so we don't want to disappoint our doctor. And so to hear our doctor say, listen, if you're non-compliant with your meds, mm. it's okay. I expect you to be non-compliant sometime. I don't expect you this and that, but I expect you to take it again. I expect you to be honest. I expect you to tell me when you don't take it. We'll get back on track and let's right. pick it up and let's go. Yeah. Again. And I appreciate that you say that honesty because 
that as a patient for me would allow me to be honest and say, hey, D, guess what? I right. fucked up today. Why? I didn't take my medicine for the right. past three days, you know, or sure. whatever it might be. And we're afraid sometimes. So when we say to our doctor, say, so have you, are you taking your medicine, Patrick? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, I'm taking it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because you don't, maybe you're afraid to get preached to, or maybe you're afraid. And sometimes we just need to remember too, though, that that guy sitting right across from me is a person too. You know, and yeah, you know, you guys bring home stuff and, you know, you deal with stuff like that, too. But it's we still, for some reason, don't want to disappoint you guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know no, I mean? that's that's a fair point. And number one, thank you for sharing that. I, I think I forget that. I'm sure Rish forgets that. I think Rish and I spend enough time bad mouthing medicine that, that, <laughs> we, that we think people should understand that we're just people. But at the same time, I think we're both very honored and feel very privileged to be in people's lives. Um, the way we are, you know, the fact that somebody will lay down and allow Reese to fillet them open and tinker around in their innards is fucking yeah. crazy. And the fact that it's amazing to it's, me, it is yeah. amazing. And the fact that people would come to my dumbass and tell me some of the deepest, <laughs> darkest shit that's ever happened to them after knowing me for 20 minutes and allowing me into their psyche is fucking crazy. But at the same time, it comes at a very heavy price and you know it weighs on me the same way you know reach is prepping for a surgery and i'll text him and he'll say all right brother wish me luck i got this case coming up it's gonna be a doozy he takes that very personally and i do the same but i think my job is to number one i want you to feel a sense of obligation because i feel that that improves outcomes i i feel that a lot of times we don't feel like we have people that we are beholden to in our lives. We're kind of resentful sometimes. We're kind of hurt, we're disappointed, ashamed, whatever the case is with people around us. So I feel that that's a privileged spot to be in as a physician. But at the same time, I tell my patients who are starting therapy, I say, look, I'm gonna be honest with you. Just about every day that I go home and I park in front of my house, before I go into the house, I literally, listen, I'm a fucking doctor. I have to say to myself, don't be an asshole. Just don't be an asshole. And, 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 and I'll walk in the house and the fucking refrigerator's wide open. Nobody's in front of it. All the fucking lights are on. It's four in the afternoon. The dog's in the backyard. He's about to make it to the other side of the fence. We know they have chickens. It's not gonna be fucking pretty. And there's shoes in the middle of the living room. Like, I can walk in and just start yelling at people, but no one's gonna come talk to me and say, oh man, what are you upset about? Everybody's gonna fucking scatter. So I have to, instead of that, I gotta remind myself, all right, don't be an asshole. Walk in, the refrigerator's open, all right, I'm gonna go close it. All right, the dog, I'll go grab them. The lights, I'll shut them off. And then I'll say, hey, do you mind if I talk to you real quick? I, I, I wanna get something off my chest, but I wanna do it right now that I'm thinking about it. Um, hey, listen, I feel really unappreciated. I'm working all day, I'm working hard. I come home and these things are happening and I just feel like it's wasteful. And I think we all work hard for our money. And I, I would just feel a, a bit more appreciated. I understand this is a me thing, but I would feel a bit more appreciated if, if I wouldn't have to come home to these things. That is infinitely different of a response, but I understand I'm not that guy. So I have to consciously be that guy. And by reminding people of that, I, you don't know how many patients say to me like, Dude, thanks for saying that. Because in their minds, they think like, I've, I've figured it out. That this is a place in life you can get on autopilot. Fuck no, it isn't. Not for me. Not right. for most people. Until the robots <clears throat> take over. Yeah. Right. You know, we're we're human beings just like anybody else. And that's yeah. part of, you know, what we try to do on our station 
also kind of break that barrier down just like you are patrick on your station you know talking about your story and at the end of the day we're all human that's what binds us together and you know speaking of you know addiction and being human and all of those things when you look at the statistics for doctors and their addiction numbers it's like astronomical like it's really yeah i saw that sky high yeah, yeah. I, I think they just did a study a few years ago in the journal of addiction medicine like close to like 70 percent of doctors like uh wow. have used either prescription medicine or alcohol or some drug to you know relieve the stress anxiety depression like related to the job and other things like that that are happening and it's real it's not something that we talk about a lot it's not something that people even want to necessarily hear that their doctors are going through some very similar shit as it relates to you know mental health and you know addiction related issues we know that doctors are over two times more likely to, to commit suicide and all those numbers and it's, it's another very difficult thing to study but you know at the end of the day this is a, a shared human experience so this is really powerful stuff man i think this is going to be a tremendous episode on a number of different accounts and I think what you're doing, Patrick, and like the, one of the reasons why you rose up the ranks very quickly. When did you join Anchor, by the way? It wasn't that long. Uh, October 30th. Yeah, yeah. And very quickly, you became a station that we became aware of and just like how thoughtful your voice messages always were and seeing your listenership grow very rapidly. It has so much to do with how authentic and open that you are in talking about these things that a lot of people, it takes a lot of courage, man. So really appreciate you thank you for yeah. that thank you for that you know and i appreciate you guys your station and everything and i think that you both hit it on the head that you both are just humans and we do i think as just a person a lay person we forget that doctors a lot of times have their own shit that they need to deal with too and when you're getting ready to have somebody's life in your hands that's a lot of stress you just met the family so now you know the family you know this you know this you know the whole backstory and how great it is and how important this person is and then the same with d and all that stuff and then you guys still have your own life that are going on and moving and stuff and so i can learn an awful lot from your station and i have been ever since i came on it's been fun and informative and you know like i said i would trust you both i trust you to cut me open <laughs> i trust you d to, to yeah. shrink my brain <laughs> yeah no man i and you know to echo you know what would reset this only works if people listen and i think if you're truthful people will listen and i i think that's pretty evident with what you're doing with what we're doing the push was never to do anything other than to do what you just said you appreciate and that show that we're human from when we were in med school doing this that was the point then that's the point now and uh reach and i are very different people in terms of training uh since that time but that's never changed and it's never been a mission that we have to remind each other of that's i think that's the beauty of it you don't i don't think you have to remind yourself to be human but unfortunately, there are people who do. They, they need that reminder. And yeah. um, you know, I would I would hate for someone to ever come to me seeking help, thinking that in some way I'm not the same kind of human. This only works if I'm human. And sometimes I need to be reminded. I can get just as jaded as anybody else. And you know, it's important to be reminded by people like you that hey, you know, what you guys are setting out to do is working. And it's something we appreciate and it's something that helps for me personally that hits a reset button to remind me that you know i ain't shit and i need i need that reminder a lot because sometimes you can get caught up in your own shit and i think having people say you know hey man you know i i can relate to you and i'm from a totally different walk of life 
reminds me, hey, ain't nothing special about what I'm doing. Um, it's just there's mm. few of us that do what we do that choose to talk about it. And I think that's the only difference. There's nothing special about it. And we take it seriously, even though it's, you know, a hobby for us, we do take it seriously. And, you know, maybe one day it won't be just a hobby, but it is something that we very seriously understand that people do listen to what we say and people take it to heart. And we listen to what people say just the same. It's not a one-way road at all, man. So anytime you're talking to us, there's it's wasted brain calories if you're nervous talking to us. <laughs> I like I said, it only went. It, it was just a brief that moment. And then once we got cut off, it yeah. was perfect. It, I said, you know, to myself, I'm like, I needed that yeah. icebreaker. Yeah. Anyways, totally, totally. <laughs> so it worked out yeah, perfect. Good, good. It worked out perfect. I really enjoyed my time with you guys, man. You guys are, it was fun. I learned, I learned a lot. I got to know you guys more. Yeah. You know, and that was, yeah, not, was groovy. Not just through uh, the, the one minute voice. Exactly. Messages. Yeah, this was uh, definitely uh, a long time coming and I'm sure there will be more of these in the future. And uh, yeah, man, this was fantastic. I really think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this. And uh, it was fun. Yeah, we really appreciate you uh, sharing your time with us. Appreciate your time. I got definitely more stories and stuff. I got more hospital stories too. So. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll definitely have to do a round two for sure. Awesome, man. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, right. Rich. Peace. This is probably one of the hardest things to do, and that's ask for help. We need your help. On any front, asking for help medically. Asking for help. Life-wise. Need help. Need help now. Asking for help. Supporting Medicine Remix. I guess it's all uncomfortable. Uh. No easy way to do it. Until now. The folks over at Anchor have decided to unveil something that we think is pretty dope. Ladies and gentlemen. It's called listener support. And the way it works is you go to anchor.fm slash medicine remixed. And it'll take you to our page. There's a support button click on it follow what it says and bam you have now donated the vital blood to this organism that it needs to keep on pumping thanks for listening medicine remix